will be the uh, third lesson in the section on covenant transition or dating or courtship or how to how to find a spouse or how to establish a new Christian family, whatever you want to call it. And so I'm just going to kind of jump in at the very uh, where we left off and, and take up where we uh, stopped last time. Uh, the uh, so much of a pastor's time is spent in dealing with families and marriages and the problems that emerge, and there always will be because sinners are involved. But this points to why who we marry is so critical, and how we go about that process is essential. We want to be sure, whether we're the parents or the young people, that we're following God's directives here like we would for anything else. And, of course, if we do, we can expect God's blessings. Uh, if we don't, we can expect the, the miseries that come with not doing it God's way, of trying to do it our way. And there's nothing more important uh, than this decision, than who we marry. And so I want to think about this. There's a lot of ways to think about it, a lot of uh, angles. We could talk about the romantic aspect of falling in love and finding our soulmate and the right person and those kinds of issues that, that are important. But I want to look at this this morning uh, in terms of the process, one way to look at this, not the only way, in fact it shouldn't be the only way, but one way to look at it is uh, what I've just called the economic exchange. We're trying to evaluate another person. That is, to determine their value. And so kind of a traditional definition of economics is the effort of individuals whereby they lawfully attempt to attain their various goals as best they can with the time and the resources available. We don't have unlimited time. And as individuals, if you're a young person and you're looking for a spouse, a husband or a wife, you don't have unlimited resources. You're a limited being. You have limited value or relative value, and so that's going to come into play as well. Courtship is the attempt of two individuals under the authority and the guidance of existing households to attain a husband or wife with the time and the resources available. Now, as I've said so often, whether we're talking about this particular topic or other issues of the family, we have the biblical ideal, a godly father, a godly mother, a godly household, both for the young man and the young woman, uh, directing this process, obeying God. That would be the perfect situation. I know and you know that there aren't very many of those. So sometimes you have uninvolved parents or involved parents on one side of the equation but not the other. And so there are all kinds of adjustments that have to be made as a result of wisdom how do we do this since we don't have everything in just the right place? But before we get there, before we can deal with those unusual or exceptional situations, it's important that we have an understanding of what the ideal is. And so, in this process, there are going to be a number of things we want to take into consideration. Certainly, individual desire is one of the factors, but also covenant, covenant authority is a factor. The family is in charge. God has placed that authority in the family. Time and resources. All of these elements need to be present for a successful 
economic exchange, if you will. Uh, I like to think in terms of uh, the marriage ceremony itself, once we get to that point where a man and a woman say, I do, they're making, they're sealing the deal, they're entering into this relationship, that's the point of termination that we're, we're headed for. And so let's back up and think a little bit about this economic process and this evaluation process. When a man presents himself to a girl's father to ask permission to pursue his daughter, an evaluation is called for. The father should consider the daughter's desire, uh, that is, for mutual desire. There has to be mutual desire for a romantic relationship. That's going to be required. Uh, he loves his daughter and he wants what's good for her and he's not going to force something upon her. However, the father may override his daughter's and or uh, even his wife's evaluation in the matter. Fathers, you are responsible. Again, I'm speaking here of the biblical ideal. You are in charge of this. God is going to hold you accountable for this. And so a young man may protest that this isn't fair. Uh, they don't really know me. The reason I want to court the girl is so that we can get to know one another. How can they make an evaluation of me with so little information? Guys, first impressions matter. That's why you're getting ready now. However young you are, how to be a young man, how to present yourself, how to dress, how to speak, how to shake hands, how to uh, mind your manners, how to be intelligent and articulate. All of these things are going to matter, and they're going to matter on the front side, not, not six months later. You may not have six minutes, so you better make sure those first five minutes count and learn how to present yourself. How you act, what you say, how you dress, all of these make some kind of an impression. And these impressions will be the basis of any evaluations or judgments until further information is obtained. And if you make a really bad first impression, you won't get the opportunity to amend that. And so, isn't that how job interviews work? And so this is going to be similar to that. Yes, they might be wrong in their initial judgment, one way or the other. But if the man can't pass the first phase of the evaluation, he simply can't go on to the second phase. Sometimes first impressions turn out to be wrong. It could be, you could have a good impression of someone that turns out to be wrong or a bad impression that turns out to be wrong. But if you can't get past the first evaluation, then no one will ever know what a great person you really are. And so... This is an important lesson. It should teach young men that their conduct and presentation of the, themselves affects their relationship to others, and, guys, it will affect your future. Fathers, you should have thought about this and have considered some ways to evaluate a young man before they show up. I appreciated Pastor Jeffrey uh, who will be here on the 8th, who just spoke at Summer Sanctus three years ago. He said one of the ways he would evaluate a young man if he ever, whenever a young man came to pursue his daughter, was he was going to invite him to church, and he was going to sit about three rows in front of this young man and listen to see if he could hear him sing during worship. Because that would indicate leadership and courage and boldness. 
And then he had a new test he presented this year called the crying test. Uh, I want to know how he reacts when his mother or his sister is upset. I don't, I don't want to know it in theory. I want to know how he's actually done that in the past. Is he sympathetic? Does he show concern? Or is he indifferent? And so some of those ways you know, of being able to evaluate uh, the character of a young man are essential. And that's why these need to just be built in, guys. You need to be uh, a godly young man uh, as you prepare for this most important decision. Who you marry is the most important thing, most important decision you'll make in your life. Now, what are some of the qualities that make people valuable? You know, the first and most obvious one is physical. Are you physically attracted? Is she pretty? Is he handsome? Uh, Are they physically attractive to you? That's an important factor, but it's not the only factor. What else? Personality, intellect, money, education, sense of humor, skill, I mean, we could go on. There's, there are many, many things that go into every person that contribute something. And for all of us, those are relative to something. And they're not going to be exactly the same for you or someone else. Think about other items that we buy. If, if uh, you and I, if Marinelle and I go to uh, Harbor Freight, um, she finds almost nothing that she wants. And I want everything. Um, my interests are different than hers, and I value what they offer versus what what she perceives there. Now, we go to a different store, it's the other way around. Uh, We go to the grocery store, we both like that. So so it, it varies in terms of our desires, but nevertheless, those we're looking at all the totality of a human being. And remember, when you meet someone, let's go back to this first impression issue, what if they really make that good first impression? They're physically attractive, they're smart, they're witty, and all of that. And if you're not careful, you take those first bits of information and draw a conclusion and fall in love in ten minutes before you've taken the time to find out the truth. To find out, anybody here work at making a good impression? especially if you were going out on a date, take a bath, um, put on your makeup, wear some nice clothes, buy some flowers maybe, whatever. You're going to make good first impressions, and you should, as I've already mentioned. But now the hard work comes in getting to know someone to find out what's behind that, the real person, to be known. To know, uh, as, as a quote I like, I don't know who said it, but in order to, in order to get the dimple, you've got to marry the whole girl. Uh, there's there's the, the whole person that we have to come to know. And the Bible speaks in terms of the hidden person of the heart. What about the spiritual aspects of this person? The interpersonal things. We want to see them in all kinds of circumstances. And the sum total of these make up our value. Each of us, then, is relatively weaker or stronger in all of these areas. In courtship, the individual man and woman, along with their parents, evaluate, not in a mechanical but rather in an organic way, evaluate one another in each of these areas and then compare them 
to themselves and to God's Word. Let me ask you this rhetorically. Do you think you're better than some other people? Are there some people that you say, if that was the last person on earth, I would not marry them? Of course. And of course you think you're better than some people. You know why? Because you are better than some people. Some of you are faster than other people. Some of you are taller than other people, smarter than other people, richer than other people, more godly than other people. And so there's always this comparison going on. Now, God's no respecter of persons. We're kind and gracious and and all that to all kinds of people. Uh, We associate with the lowly, but we don't have to marry the lowly. Unless we're lowly, too, and it's a good match, and and we're kind of, there's a sort of economic parity. So, um, you also believe that some people are better than you, right, when it comes to the question of marriage. And so that's a, that takes some wisdom, okay? If you're a goober, and, and she's a highly educated, sophisticated woman, uh, you might look at her and think, yeah, she's very attractive, but she wouldn't give me the time of day. That's part of that evaluation that goes on. And so just be aware that you're gonna, we're going to be talking about how you add to your value. Otherwise, you would be equally attracted to everyone if we didn't have these judgments. And so you may have valuable friends of the opposite sex who, are not, who you're not attracted to as a possible mate, of course. In fact, you must remember that if God intends for you to be married at all, he also has a specific person in mind for you to marry. However, like evangelism, God also ordains the means to accomplish his purpose. In other words, if you don't bathe and you belch after every meal and you hadn't, and you've, you hadn't washed the deer blood off your truck since last hunting season, uh, you may expect to find a wife, if you find one at all, from a rather restricted circle of women. That's okay, but just be realistic. So, how do you, men and women, make yourself valuable? You, um, what if you're stuck with that face or that body? What can I do about it? Well, there may be several things that you can do about it, but remember, your value is the sum total of all your qualities. Most qualities can, can be improved some or a little bit or sometimes a lot. Spiritual qualities, though, can be improved on dramatically. I don't care what you look like, how much money you have, I don't care where you came from, you can be more godly. You can be more Christ-like. You can be more valuable. In fact, that's the ultimate value. It will override all those other things. And so... um, So first, start with a realistic evaluation of yourself, and that's where if you're a young person, sit down with your parents and start there. Mom and Dad, what do I need to work on? Mom and Dad, sit down with your young people and say, you know what, you're a a young teenager, and I know you may not be thinking about marriage just yet, but we are, because we really love you, but really don't want you to live here the rest of your life. Uh, We would like for you to leave soon, relatively soon, and so we need to start getting ready for that. We need to get you ready for that. And so we want to talk about some of those things and have a conversation about 
Where are the areas where you're strong and where are the areas that you can improve? And let's, let's work on that together. Romans 12:3. For I say through the grace given to me to everyone who is among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. And so uh, if you look like Quasimodo from the Hunchback of Notre Dame, then perhaps Asmerelda is out of your reach at the moment. But don't forget to evaluate all aspects of your being, of yourself. Talk to friends and others to learn about your strengths and weaknesses. And they might be the same thing, by the way. That thing you're really good at, sometimes you're too good at. And so that becomes a weakness, at least at the point where you're being too good at it. Second, improve the things you can improve. Some things you can improve today, and this may have an immediate impact. Um, Solomon 8, verses 8 through 9. Um, uh, we have a little sister, and, and she has no breast. What shall we do for our sister in the day when she's spoken for? If she is a wall, we will build upon her battlement, a battlement of silver, and if she is a door, we will enclose her with boards of cedar. I'm not going to take the time this morning in public to interpret that poetry. Let's just say these brothers evaluated their little sister and they helped her. They took her uh, liabilities and her assets and they helped her present herself publicly in the most attractive way. Let's just say if she was too good in one area, they played it down. And if she was not very good in another area, they, they, uh, they covered her, her weakness. That's an appropriate thing for family to do, to be loving and helpful in those areas. And again, the Bible is not embarrassed to talk about these things. In other things, we require, they require a long-term effort. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees and hypocrites, for you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. These you ought to have done without leaving the others done, blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees and hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they're full of extortion and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee first clean the inside of the cup and dish, and the outside, uh, that the outside of them may be clean also. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you're like the whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. So let's say this. What is, your, what is the primary thing that makes you attractive and beautiful? Is it your outward appearance? Is that, and I'm not talking about just natural beauty here, but you know what I'm talking about. If somebody's all dolled up and mainly concerned about being hot, of making sure heads turn when you walk by, guess what kind of spouse you're going to get? You get more of what you pay for. Okay, If that's what you're offering, that's what you're going to get. But if you're godly, you can be, again, you, can be, you should be as beautiful as God and, uh, as, as you can be physically. But beauty should, should be overridden and should be dominated by your love for Christ and your commitment to Him, the kind of person that someone looks at you and says, He's 
going to make somebody, maybe not me, but somebody a great husband and a great father because he loves Christ first. That is attractive. And if that's your primary quality, or if that's her primary quality, guess who they're going to attract? Like attracts like. And so, that's where you put your focus. Proverbs 31.10. Who can find a virtuous wife? For her worth is far above rubies. A virtuous wife... So things, every, uh, the things everyone can improve on the most are the spiritual and inward qualities. First Samuel 16, 7-8, So it was when they came that he looked at Eliab and said, remember this is the story where um, Samuel has called the sons of Jesse together because he said, I'm going to anoint one of the sons of Jesse to be the next king. So all the sons of Jesse come in except David who's still out tending to the sheep and he sees Eliab. Eliab's described as tall and handsome. And he walks into the room, and Samuel sees him and says, Surely this is the Lord's anointed. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or the height of his stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And if we're going to be like the Lord, that means that's where we need to have our focus as well. 1 Peter 3 Three through five. Do not let your adornment be merely outward, arranging the hair, wearing gold, or putting on fine apparel. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart, with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of the Lord. And so, learning to value what God values, because that's what lasts. That's what increases. And so. Uh, you also want to see each other uh, in all kinds of circumstances. That's why I think uh, having family gatherings and doing things in groups is the most it's safe for a lot of reasons, but it's also where we see people in real life. Now, when a good economic exchange takes place, everyone should perceive that they received a good deal. Now, I've used this illustration a thousand times, so bear with me if, I, if you've heard it before, but if you go to the grocery store and there in the, in the center aisle is a stack of cans of corn, ten cans for a dollar. Man, I love corn. I'm going, to buy, I'm, going to, I'm going to buy 20 cans. And so you grab up the 20 cans and you check out and you give the grocer $2 and you get 20 cans of corn. Who's happy? You or the grocer? Both. He's got too much corn, apparently, and he'd like to get rid of some of it, and he'd like your $2 and you'd like the corn, and you're, you happily have this exchange. In economics, it's called a per-positive exchange. Both people are happy. You go back a month later, and corn's a dollar a can, and you just walk right past it. You don't buy the corn, and you don't give the grocer a dollar. Who's happy? Both of you. He doesn't want to give up his corn for that for anything less than that, and you don't want to give up your dollar for that. So you're both happy. That's a per positive situation. You're both satisfied. And so, uh, in courtship, there is a sort of shopping that's going on. Each person has both assets and liabilities, 
and an evaluation of those assets and liabilities is taking place continually during that process. The man and the woman, under the oversight of the woman's father, are deciding if they think the other one is a good deal or not. In the end, if everyone is agreed that this marriage, that is, this economic transaction, is a good one, then everyone should be happy. When they say, I do, they both ought to be thinking at the ceremony, I'm getting a good deal. That's the goal. Now, since sons and daughters are being prepared for different roles in life, and therefore therefore the application of your responsibility and authority, parents, will differ. Sons are being prepared to be covenant heads, to be loving leaders who will take responsibility and authority for their households. Sons marry. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Daughters are being prepared to be wives who will assist their husbands and come under his authority and protection. Daughters are given in marriage. That's why still in our tradition, in our Christian tradition of wedding ceremonies, we ask who gives this woman to be married this man. And the father speaks on behalf usually of he and his wife, or mother and I do. She's being given away. The father has authority over the daughter's romantic interest and sexual purity. Uh, so if a man, um, in Exodus 22, if a man entices a virgin who is not betrothed and lies with her, he shall surely pay the bride price for her to his wife, uh, to be his wife. If her father utterly refuses to give her to him, he shall pay money according to the bride price of virgins. He has the authority over his daughter's commitments, even. Again, I know, boy, this is, uh, this would send, uh, modern day feminists into an absolute tailspin. Um, but this is the word of the Lord. If her father, um, but if her father overrules her on the day that he hears of a vow or a promise or a commitment she's made, then none of her vows nor her agreements by which she has bound herself shall stand, and the Lord will release her because her father overruled her. And sons will come under all this by way of the daughter's father when he comes to pursue her. Now, like every other phase of child training, courtship, dating, involves establishing control. Fathers make the rules, fathers interpret the rules, and fathers apply the rules. And this will usually be the the daughter's father. He should set all the limits and the terms of the relationship and and, uh, and govern and rule over it. Courting couples tend to think that they have the wisdom to do whatever they want to. However, they must continue to honor and obey their parents in the Lord. That will be the sermon again today. All child training should be preparation for our children assuming their proper roles in a covenant household. Sons, the fathers... um, Uh, My son, keep your father's command and do not forsake the law of your mother. Bind them continually upon your heart. Tie them around your neck. They should go with you wherever you go. 
Um, daughter's fatherly affection provides an example and security for, for his daughter. Mothers train their daughters. The older women likewise, uh, as, Titus, as Paul writes in, uh, to Titus, they admonish the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, homemakers, good, obedient, uh, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be blasphemed. So again, we're talking here about parents. Uh, as it's, when your children become teenagers, particularly older teenagers, you're not finished yet. In fact, you're at the critical point. If you, if you go 80% of the way and then stop, you're, you're inviting disaster at the very point that you've been working for and working toward. This is critical that you stay engaged and not look the other way. Parents protect their children from foolish decisions. And courtship is a protection and should be a relief for our children. Now, there are two features that distinguish the relationship of a man and a woman in marriage. First is a sexual relationship, and second, it's in the context of a covenant. There are rules and responsibilities and duties that govern the relationship. It's important for all the parties involved in this process to acknowledge that these are the goals. And that's why, let me just say, I'm going to express an opinion, but I think it's rooted in this truth. 15-year-olds, 16-year-olds, 17-year-olds in, in, in deep, personal, romantic relationships is a bad idea. Why? Because they can't do anything but get in trouble. There is no way to do what needs to be done to resolve the temptations that come along. And as we've said before, this is not anti-sexuality. This is not, we're not opposed to that. We're for it. We're for it in God's way, at the right time, in the right place, under the right circumstances. But to put your children in a place where great harm can come to them, is foolish, and it is you are inviting disaster. And also, I've said before, the best kids, the most godly kids, get into trouble here when they don't have the protection of parents and church and people who, who will love them and set those boundaries. And many of you know that. You know it personally from your own experience. You know it by seeing it in others. And I'm, you know, if I could just scream anything from the housetop, this would be it. Please don't play around with this. Lives are ruined and destroyed and great heartache for everyone. And some of it, you know, very lasting. Um, so it's important for everybody to acknowledge what's going on. Oh, well, they're just friends. No, not if they're, not if they're, not if they pair it off. They're not just friends. It has now gone beyond being just friends. Unless they're holding hands with all their friends, it is way beyond. And by the way, and I don't have time for all this today. We can have a separate discussion on this. But let's just point out the obvious: holding hands is Sexual. Your skin is and touching is part of that. I'm not against it. There's a time and a place for it. 
but do you really want your 16-year-olds holding hands? Because if you think that's where it's going to stop, you, you, there's something wrong with you. I, I don't know how else to, to, to put it, but we need to face this right up the middle. Now, I know we'll get laughed at and thought of as some kind of, you know, old fogies and we don't understand and all that, but here's the point is we do understand. And you understand. And if you, you look the other way, you do so at your own peril. If there is no interest on the part of the single man and woman for a covenantal and sexual relationship, there is no need to proceed. You know, so whenever that guy shows up, you know, here's the 15-year-old showing up. I want to want to date your daughter. Really? When are y'all getting married? When do you want to? What do you have in mind, time-wise? Oh, about six years. Uh, no. What's he going to say? Six months? A year and a half? Let's see. You'll be how old? Seventeen? I don't think so. We like you, you're a good guy, see you at church, come back in two years if you're still interested or whatever. Okay, in the meantime, here's what you can do. You can grow in godliness. You can demonstrate what a great man of God you are. So that if and when you do show back up, I'll be eager to see you show back up. So you can give some friendly, I'm not saying be rude or anything like that, but this is... Uh, a dangerous situation. When a man asks a woman's father for permission to court his daughter, he is asking for permission to pursue both a covenantal and a sexual relationship with the daughter. That's what he's asking for, even though he won't articulate it that way. Understanding the nature of the courting relationship will assist parents in directing and governing that relationship. Parents will help develop and train the couple in the direction of responsibility, observing how they relate to one another and, and the other relationships that they have with other members of the family and church and friends. By the way, circles should always overlap. When, uh, when you know, we keep, keep people separate in separate circles, that's usually because we don't want real accountability. We don't want anybody looking over our shoulder. But when our circles overlap and our friends and family and all know everything that's going on, we might, you know, that's the safe place to be. Um, popular dating focuses on entertainment in an artificial context. Um, parents will control and set limits on the sexual aspect of the relationship because parents, better than children, recognize both the desire and the biology of the relationship. That parents are responsible to provide an appropriate environment for the sexual relationship to develop at the appropriate pace and in the appropriate way. I like to think of a relationship that ends in marriage as a staircase. There's On the very bottom, there's how do you do, and at the very top is I do. How long is that staircase? How long is that staircase if they're 16? How long is that staircase if they're 26? Well, your job is to pace that. If they run halfway up the staircase in six weeks, you got a problem. If you think you're going to manage that next half for several years without getting into some real trouble. 
Um, courting couples, dating couples have not entered covenant with one another. He is not her husband. She is not his wife, even if they're truly, madly, deeply in love. They are not married in God's eyes. They are not married in anyone's eyes because they're not married. The daughter is under her father. The man is under the daughter's father. And like all governments, the laws of the relationship must be clearly established and enforced by those who are in authority. That's because God loves you. Not because God's a killjoy. He want, you, know what he, you know what God wants for you, young people? He wants you to grow up and follow Jesus just like you promised you would. That you want to follow Jesus all the days of your life. And he wants you to follow him all the way to the point of holy matrimony. If that's his call for you is to be married, he wants you to do it in a way that's holy, godly. He wants you to marry the man of your dreams or the woman of your dreams and to adore one another in Christ and to come alongside one another and be one flesh and have lots of children and fill the earth with God-glorifying children. That's what he wants for you. He wants your happiness in Christ. That's what your mom and dad want. They're not your enemies. And God's Word has set these boundaries in order to get you there safely. And there are all kinds of pressures to get you to do it another way, including in your own heart. I want to do it my way. I don't want anybody telling me. I want to sneak around and do things without telling mom and dad or whatever. Then don't be surprised when things don't go well. Be careful. You may get what you're asking for. Um, as a couple spends time in the context of the household, that is around parents and siblings, it is, in, it is the family environment that, that allows for training. As Christians, it is not sufficient to be old enough to get married. A person must be mature enough to get married. There's the difference. And so we're going to train men to take responsibility in the context of the household. He demonstrates his concern for everyone in the household entering into the life of the entire family. And so we're going to train men to take authority, train daughters in the area of submitting to fathers. I've run into this many times, couples seeing one another, courting, a dating, serious relationship, and the fathers set some rules about what they can and can't do, where they can and can't go, and they're doing an end run around dad. Or the guy's coming to me, I think the father's unreasonable, and he's unfair, and uh, so forth. And so sometimes it's the girl, sometimes it's the guy, sometimes it's both of them decide to do an end run around the boundaries. What's happening? What is that daughter learning to do? What's she going to do when she's a wife? And her husband sets some boundaries. You're going to do an end run. And what's he going to do? What's, what, sh what should she recognize about him? That when he is under authority and he doesn't like it, what does he do? What is he going to do with his boss at work? What is he going to do when he's away from church and oversight? He's going to do an end run too. So no matter how hard it is or how unreasonable father is, and he might be. Sometimes I've seen some fathers that I thought were pretty unreasonable. 
But if they're not causing you to sin, if they're not requiring you to sin against God, then your job is to submit. Hurry up and do all the things you need to do. Get a job, be able to support a wife, and get married, and then you can do it your way under God. But until then, the most important thing for you to do is honor father and mother because that has long-term ramifications. Courtship is a family-oriented activity while the popular conception of dating only focuses on the privacy of the couple. And there is, there is an appropriate amount of privacy for a couple in the context of the family or other public gatherings. The kind of privacy that most couples desire has nothing to do with conversation. John 3.19, and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. The father is responsible. To, well, here's the question. Should, should, does that mean parents have to chaperone all the time? And the answer is fathers are responsible for the sexual purity of their daughters. Do whatever you have to do. The sober minds of the parents provide the control for the passions of the couple. So you do whatever you have to do. Sexual passions are often stronger than the will. This is true even for the most godly and trustworthy people. It's the way God made us. And so um, the Bible describes the nature of sexual desire uh, as being good in the right context. Uh, does this, so does, it, does there always have to be a physical chaperone present with a couple up to the day they're married? And the answer is yes, if that's the only way you can govern the sexual activity. I don't think that's the only way, but if that's the only way you can do it, then the answer is yes. If your right eye offend thee, pluck it out. You do whatever it takes. Parental knowledge of the individuals and their relationship is essential for proper judgments to be made in this area. Now, I'm rushing through some of this. I want to wrap this up today by reading 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 through 8. Parent, if, if, if uh, I believe before I would let my kids date uh, or, or enter into a serious relationship, I would insist that they memorize this passage, and I mean memorize it really well, like can, can say it on command. And after you hear it, you'll know why. Now, and maybe you want to just do the second part of this. I'm going to read the first two verses, uh, but, but maybe verses 3 through 8. Because the Word of God is what guards our hearts. And if your children are true Christians and want to follow Jesus, they want to know the will of God, right? Isn't that what we're trying to figure out? Who should I marry? What's God's will for my life? Finally then, brethren, we urge and exhort in the Lord Jesus that you should abound more and more, just as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God. For you know what commandments we gave you through the Lord Jesus. Now here starts this particular section. The issue is about knowing the will of God, how to please God. And he says, verse 3, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, your holiness, 
that you should abstain, in case you don't know what that means, that you should abstain from sexual immorality. That each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. Not in passion of lust, like the Gentiles who, don't, who do not know God. That no one should take advantage of and defraud his brother in this matter. In other words, you don't get to steal from your boyfriend or your girlfriend what doesn't belong to you. And it won't belong to you until you're married. It's not yours. God didn't give it to you, and it's not yours yet. That no one should take advantage of and defraud his brother in this matter because, listen, the Lord is the avenger of all such. As, as we also forewarned you and testified, for God did not call us to uncleanness, but in holiness. Therefore, he who rejects this does not reject man, but God, who has also given us his Holy Spirit. And so that passage, I think, is the most direct and powerful instruction from the Word of God in this matter. And if that was embedded in our hearts, if the Word of God's hidden in our hearts and abides in us, then it stands there as a guard, as a protector for our young people to know what God requires. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this instruction. Help us as parents to love our children all the way until they've established new households to your glory and for their good for many generations to come. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.